Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hello and welcome back to the Chasing Wins podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Um, I'm your host, Andre, uh, and I'm joined by Jim today, Sheridan Blog on Twitter. Uh, You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, including the free Odyssey app. Uh, Download the app and turn on uh, the download feature to get our episodes as soon as they drop. And I appreciate you guys for tuning in, as always. So um, we just recapped the the King series and uh, that... That was an incredible series. It was a seven-gamer. Uh, closed out with, with 50 points from Steph Curry. Uh, Jim, what are your thoughts on not only the entirety of the series, but that game seven as well? Well, the game, Dre, you know how I felt about how the Warriors need to do things. Going into game seven, I was very upset with what happened in game six because the Warriors came out with zero urgency. They played – Steve Kerr had a game plan like – this was game five of the regular season. They're running regular season stuff. They're re- running the motion offense to the ground. And there's just no sense of urgency as to, hey, we're at home and we need to close this because we don't want to end up on the road. We've been horrible on the road all season long. We don't want to put ourselves in a situation where we're that vulnerable. We're comfortable at home. We're great at home, but we have to play with purpose and we have to prioritize things to obviously that means Steph Curry on the ball more and not playing random offense and all this kind of stuff that they usually do that gets them into trouble oftentimes, especially on the road, right? But the thing about it is that the Warriors usually, they feel so comfortable at home that the motion oftentimes works enough for them to win. That's why they're great at home because the players play better at home. Their role players play better at home. Uh, There's less pressure with the, with the crowd on your side and everything, especially knowing that, you know, in a game six, you know that you do have another game if you do somehow end up losing that game. But that's not the mindset that you want to go into a game with. You're in the playoffs. This is it. You know, the intensity level's got to be all-time high. You hear other coaches talking about it, and, uh, you know, they you hear the sense of urgency. You know, like, this is the playoffs. What are we fighting for? We're trying to win it all. You can't do this and that if you want to win in the playoffs, you know, that that kind of intensity, you know what I mean? And going into game six, they just didn't have that. Steph Curry himself didn't really have that. Like if he needs to go rogue, then he needs to go rogue. He needs to be on the ball. He needs to be in control of what they're doing rather than standing in the corner and just watching his lesser teammates kind of fail him. You know what I mean? And him just being okay with that concept and idea. Uh, We know that when the Warriors go into the playoffs, all they do, you know, they turn to a certain style of play. 
And we know that that's not the motion because we know that elite teams know what the motion is and it's easier to guard because Curry is less involved in it. So it's less pressure for them. They can drop back and they can just do all these basic things um, that makes it harder on the Warriors and makes it easy for the other team. And so that's why oftentimes you see in the playoffs over and over again, we know what they do, right, Dre? Uh, we know that Curry, it becomes a Curry-centric offense. We know that Curry steps it up uh, and the whole thing changes. Pick and roll is just a more effective way to attack a defense, especially when you have Steph Curry on the team. We know that Steph Curry led the league in points per possession in the regular season for any any player that uh, used at least five possessions of it uh, in the regular season. But we also know that you know uh, the Warriors were ranked in the bottom bottom two teams in terms of uh, how often they use the pick and roll. It kind of it's so counterintuitive, but we know that Steve Kerr doesn't like the pick and roll. So so one of the things I noticed in Game One specifically, right? is we were doing a good job picking apart the Kings overall. Um, we ended up having like a 10-point lead in that third quarter. Steve takes Steph out for a few minutes, and and the Kings go on a, a crazy run. They're just hitting shots. They're getting stops. The offense looks out of sorts. Um, the momentum swung, and the lead was cut down to one going into the fourth. Then in the fourth um, – Steph came back, but at that point, the Kings had gained enough confidence and momentum to where their shot-making was incredible. Fox was hitting shots. And I felt like that three-minute stretch in the third really defined game one because you have to take advantage when a run is in uh, in progress and you have to be able to, to you know, capitalize on that, you know, lead. And I felt like Steve prematurely took Steph out. I think that cost us. And it forced that fourth quarter for it to be, you know, hero ball from Steph hitting incredibly difficult shots, which he did, which he does. But, you know, when you shift momentum like that and you blow a game, a game one at that on the road, it, I felt like that was the game that ultimately extended the series. And then even having going, gone down 0-2, right? You see game two as well. The stomp, you know, stomp gate with Draymond. Uh, our offense wasn't good at all. We, we ended the game with 96 points. We couldn't really shoot the ball. Uh, it was very difficult. We played out of the mud, like um, very difficult to c- come across points. We were running a lot of motion, heavy turnovers that game. Um, and that game, we just couldn't close the deal as well. Davion Mitchell hits a corner three, super clutch shot, and that was ball game. And then game three, you know, Draymond gets suspended. We blow them out. I mean, Steph, right, like you said, pick and roll, high ball screen especially. So you got the high ball screen stuff with Loon, with um, Wiggins, and and the guard to guard actions as well with Clay and and Pool and these guys were just you know spread. Steph was getting to his spots, just cooking whoever who was in front of him. Um, and defensively, I thought we were incredible. We only allowed ninety seven points in that game three, and that game three was was a very encouraging sign because we were able to regain momentum. Then game four, I felt you know we shot the ball the best all series in that game four, but defensively we allowed 125 points and a near Harrison Barnes game winner. And the funny part about that is, is that we were in control that fourth quarter. Steph closed out the deal. We were hitting shots. Wiggins had that clutch floater up by five, but it slipped away. And because of mistakes we made self-inflicted wounds as Steph likes to call them and things that are just inexcusable and unforgivable 
uh, like calling a timeout when you're out of them, uh, like, you know, things of that nature, turning the ball over, taking ill-advised shots, break defensive breakdowns. Now at the end there, we, we were able to execute down the stretch, close out on Harrison Barnes, misses that shot, and now it's tied up 2-2. Two to two. Now that game five was as composed and as surgical uh, as we've seen the Warriors all season on the road. I mean, they were just running half-court sets, super slow-paced, lower possessions, executing to a T. All the momentum was just, it felt like they had it throughout the entire game. Steph was doing his thing. Um, actually, he ended the game with 31 points, but he was struggling throughout. But he was doing a good job keeping pace. It was Wiggins, you know, hitting some shots. Um, Clay was 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 hitting, was doing his thing. Um and guys, you know, just con- kind of contributing. Draymond had 21 huge points in that game. He was hitting clutch shot after clutch shot. That was one of the greatest Draymond Greens we've ever seen on both ends, just stopping Fox, being everywhere defensively, helping the helper, peel switching, uh, dropping, um, you know, just playing the cat and mouse in the pick and roll, just really was everywhere. And that was incredibly, you know, encouraging to see that. And then going into game six, we all kind of expected them to close out the deal like they historically have. Uh, and they didn't, they dropped, they dropped the ball. They laid an egg. And I just remember like, you know, they talk about that Steph post-game speech. Like, we don't go out like this. This is not, you know, this is not what we do. And she's like lighting a fire under their asses. He's going at, you know, you know, he's directing certain messages at guys. Like, you know, if you're not, if you're worried about playing time, if you're worried about, you know, the wrong things, don't get on that bus. You know what I'm saying? And you know, that game six was just a huge letdown, man. They let Malik Monk come in, shoot shots, you know, without without much resistance. We we were just discombobulated defensively all over the place, allowing open dunks, open freeways to the rim uh, off of made baskets. Did not look like a championship team that wanted to close out uh, as well as they should. And then game seven comes around and the fan base is on pins and needles. I felt like defensively, we just played a good half, right? We were only down two, um, but the the Kings hit some tough shots. You got Terrence Davis knocking down some threes. Um, you know, they were they were doing their thing. Sabonis got free early. He had 16 first half points, but ultimately, that shot profile that they had leaned into, what we wanted to do, like contesting certain shots, flybys. You know, Trey Lyles. They had their bench outscored our bench pretty handily, but in that second half, we ended up getting some stops. Steph Curry took over. And that was that was the story of the game and of the series, but um, it was a very up and down series. I was very disappointed in games one and six. I felt like coaching in game one, and then and I could, we could blame coaching in game six, but for me it was more so the players. Man, players got to come out with a sense of urgency and have that killer mentality to close out a series as we know them historically to be able to. And they just, I mean, they were completely detached from the game. They were, they were, um, they were down on themselves and they allowed it to slip away. And I feel like if we can clean those things up on top of the X's and O's of rebounding the ball, boxing out, finding your man, uh, sticking to your assignment. And we kind of did that as the series went on. And then as well as limiting turnovers, the games that we limited, limited turnovers, um, we, we were in great shape. So kind of these trends that you saw throughout the series and ultimately, um, and I know in, on spaces, we, we point this out, like shot attempts overall, right? When the Kings shot the ball more than us, they won the game. When we shot the, the ball more than them, they won the game. Or, or sorry, we won the game. And 
essentially what that what goes into that is the turnovers and the rebounding, right? The team that turns the ball over less and rebounds more, his, like typically uh, gets more shots up and typically wins the game. So those those are kind of the patterns and the formulas that we that we can identify throughout this series specifically. I thought Mike Brown did a great job coaching, uh, you know, throwing different curveballs with Alex Len the first couple of games, a guy who kind of rebounded and provided some energy as a role threat, as a you know as a guy who can rebound you know offensively, um, play finisher. And then he kind of went away from that once we figured those minutes out, went to Trey Lyles at the five, spreading their offense out, five out, um, forcing our defense to have to scramble and, and, and close out on shooters and, and move and, and really consider all these threats offensively. And Lyles did a good job rebounding as well. Then he went to Terrence Davis, went away from Davion Mitchell uh, from the first few games. Terrence Davis, kind of an energy guy, a guy who – you know, is really engaged and can shoot the three ball provides, you know, an injection of spacing and, you know, went away from Mitchell, who was kind of an offensive liability as the series went on. So I just thought it was a great chess match uh, by Mike Brown. I would say he probably did out coach Kerr give like overall in the series, uh, just given the adjustments that were made, but Kerr did a good job the last three games, um, kind of adjusting and, and playing the right guys. I thought, I thought that game six though was, a letdown on on all sides, but is there anything from this series that you took away that you thought was encouraging going into the Lakers series, and you thought was discouraging, and you and you want to be corrected for the for the remainder of the playoffs? So first of all, that was an immaculate game to game breakdown. Uh, games one through seven, uh, you did great, and I just. I just want to say that because, you know, I, you know how I started out this podcast and it's the whole philosophical nature or the ideological nature of how Kerr coaches games and how he gets too comfortable and defaults back to what he knows best, which is move without the ball uh, and pass the ball to the open man and, you know, find the best shot possible and this kind of thing. Right. The problem is, you, I'm telling you, you can't do that in the playoffs. You talk about turnovers. Why are they turning the ball over so much when they run that motion? It's because it's oftentimes out of the hands of your best player. Uh, you're running traffic cop offense with Draymond up top, looking for a place to develop, knowing that the defense is completely sagging off him because they know what exactly what they're what he's going to do. They know that he's just going to look to pass, whether he's in the split action, whether he's at the top of the key. They know that he's just trying to pass the ball. He's not looking to score. So that makes you super predictable. And that's not the guy that you want to generate offense out of. And while you have Steph Curry, the greatest offensive fucking player, uh, you know, that we've ever seen, the guy can score from anywhere and everywhere. He's a threat. So you put that much more pressure uh, on the defense when that guy has the ball and you're, uh, and the defense is scared. Uh, they're constantly thinking, oh, we got to throw two guys at him. Otherwise he's going to, you know, whether it's the pick and roll, whatever DHO, um, and he's a scary, scary player for the opponents, and you want to take advantage of that. And they didn't do that in game six. They got casual. They're like, oh, we feel comfortable. We're at home. We can do what we want. Well, things didn't work out. Guys felt the pressure of the moment. And the thing about having Curry off the ball too much and having him just standing in the corner and watching is that you know, when that happens, you're essentially taking him out of 
your plays and kind of relying on his lesser teammates. And you're, say, you're as, reducing his impact and value. And those minutes on the court are when he should exert that value the most. Like Jordan Poole possessions in a vacuum are less efficient than Steph. Steph Curry led possessions or Clay Thompson isolations are inherently less valuable than what putting Steph on the ball and having him create. And obviously, Jim, we know we understand that there needs to be a balance, right? You can't just go super heavy, isocentric or pick and roll centric. Otherwise, it devolves into what we've seen with the Suns, where you know, it, it, and that's that's an extreme example, of course. But, but Dre, yeah. like you can't compare what Steph Curry is able to do on the on the ball com- right. uh, with anybody else in the league. You can't compare it to KD. You can't compare it to D Book or whoever else you want to compare it to, because uh, because how much because of how much better he is, right? With the handles that he has, like KD does not have the handles that Steph Curry. Has. He does not have the quickness. He doesn't have the ability to get to any to anywhere on the floor and create something for his teammates uh, the way Steph Curry can. He cannot, you know, uh, kind of uh, pass out of the pressure of a trap the way Steph Curry can like, you know, it's, it's different levels we're talking about. So uh, again, you kind of, you notice what happened in game seven, Steph Curry brought the ball up almost exclusively every time he actually acted like the team's point guard. And guess what? He took, he took care of the ball. Only one turnover for him, seven turnovers overall for the team because they're now passing all over the place and just, you know, the, the ball's not flying all over and you're not making all these predictable passes. The guys, you're not allowing the other team to play the passing lanes. This is a good point, right? I want to, exactly. So these telegraph passes, when they when they play the traffic cop Draymond stuff, top of the key, you got Steph and Clay running off pin downs. As if Mike Brown and, and these guys haven't studied and scouted these patterns. These are patterns and routes that are principles and mainstays of what the Warriors like to run the primary attack. So obviously like they're going to be quite familiar with how to cut it off. And that's why you saw turnovers be in at such a high margin uh, the first few games. And then as you saw the series going wane on, like you said, uh, they cut down because they put guys on the ball. Uh, so, yeah. Let me tell you going. something. Yep. This system makes Stephen Curry casual with the ball. Because he's just kind of handing it off, he knowing that he's not going to be the one handling it. He's just another player on the court in this system. He's like another clay or something. So he gets very casual and he gets very careless uh, when he plays the, in this system, uh, constantly just moving without the ball. He's a guy who thrives with the ball. He can do anything he wants with the ball. So there's no reason to you know use him the way... Uh, Kerr does uh, like in the regular season. Even you, we saw how bad they were on the road. They were comically bad on the road. And the thing about playing on the road is that uh, role players are not as good on the road. Even you know guys that are in the starting lineup are not as good on the road. Look at you know whether it's Clay Thompson, uh, whether it's Wiggins. Like they're not as good on the road as they are at home. And that's especially true for guys like Dante. You know, Kuminga, uh, whoever else you can name uh, off the off the bench. You know, even a guy like maybe Jermichael Green or something. They all play better on, at home than on the road, which means you don't want to use a system that heavily relies on your role players more than your best player. Because Steph Curry, whether he's on the road, whether he's at home, the guy produces. So that's the guy that you want to rely on, right? When when there's more pressure and you and you got to remember. 
it's the same thing for the other team. They play better at home. Their role players play better at home. A guy like, what's his name? Terrence Davis? Is that his name? Like, Yeah, he, Terrence Davis. They ran a lot of dudes. I mean, Len, Alex Len, Trey Lyles, you know. Yeah, they're going to play better at home generally. And so you have to put, uh, put that into consideration and put the onus and pressure on your best player to produce so that your the other the secondary and the third guys don't have to feel like ah oh, like this is a system where like I really have to play uh super well or else like we might fail right that it doesn't make any sense there's no hierarchy there and so you know I don't know if this was a Kerr thing because you know I don't know if you saw my tweets after game six ended but I was essentially saying and, and I uh, kind of used Steph Curry's handle directly. I was just like, you can't just, you can't just, you know, use this system. You can't just allow Kerr to dictate how you're going to play. At some point, you need to take control and you need to have like a team meeting or something addressing this situation because, and you notice like that article came out talking about how Steph Curry gave a speech and whatever, right? And that, that was such a huge deal because one of the key things that I saw in what he was talking about was that, I trust and ha have belief in you guys uh, in that we can get this done. But I ask for that belief and trust in return. Right. Have faith in me. Right. Um, and I, I will make sure that we win this series. Right. Mm -hmm. And the thing about that is what frustrates me about that is that I feel that he shouldn't have to do this. Like this should be obvious. Everybody on the team should know this is Steph Curry's team. Fall in line enough with the egos. Clay is, you know, an incredible role player for this team, but he's not 1A to uh, Steph Curry. I mean, he's not 1B to Steph Curry's 1A. You know what I'm saying? He's a distinct number two or number three option on any given night, depending on how he's shooting. In in Game Seven's case, he was a, clearly a third option because he was missing everything, right? And, and these guys need to fall in line. Draymond Green has the ball too much, like, Fall in line. Give the ball to your best guy. Play your secondary role as a secondary playmaker. Uh, and these things, this, this is the kind of thing that Steve Kerr has to direct his team because it's his orders. He's telling the team how to play, what to do. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, he should be the one, he should be the yeah. one being like, hey, Steph, this is your team. Uh, we rely on you. You make it happen for us right. and everybody else will support you. Uh, in their roles. Like, that's a coaching thing. The coach has to tell the team what to do. But he doesn't, Kerr does not do that. So Draymond and, you know, Steph Curry, ha they, has, they have this separate conversation about how to address the team. And, you know, uh, Steph is like, I need you guys to trust me. Give me that trust. And I don't want to feel like I have the ball and feel like uh, guys are looking over my shoulder like, hey, how come he's shooting so much? Like, this shouldn't be happening. You know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. right. And so yeah. that's where things kind of changed in uh, game seven, where things kind of comically turned and Steph Curry was kind of comically uh, using the possessions where he's dribbling the ball and he's making things happen. He's going ISO. He's looking for the switches. Uh, he's, he's, hunting, he's hunting mismatches. Yeah, yeah. Even if he's off the ball, he's moving with a purpose on the DHO. He's, you know, he, it, knowing that he's going to get the ball back, this kind of thing. And knowing that the teammate is looking for him to get the ball back, this kind of thing. And when he's in control like that, and when he's 
passing the ball while he's in control like that, it makes the other guys feel more comfortable in taking their shots too because the pass is directly from Steph Curry, who's in control of the situation. No, you're exactly right. And and I, I think that's that you make a good point where there has been um there's been enough out there from a reporting standpoint and from a uh information standpoint, like in an understanding the locker room dynamics, right? So you got, you know, the the young dudes like Jordan, Kaminga, Dante. And Dante's in that mix because he's kind of fighting for a new deal, a contract, you know, long-term financial security. And he wants playing time. He wants his shine. He wants his run. And then you got Jordan and Kaminga who are young players who want to be out there, contribute to a winning team. So you understand like the frustrations, right? From, from all, from all parties, right? You, you got, you know, a group of, you know, young 20 year olds, and then you got a group of mid 30 year olds. And the mid 30 year olds are saying like, you know, they're thinking, you know, these are, this is how we win. There are certain things we have to do, play under control, play with pace, uh, you know, lean into defense, focus on rebounding, like the little things, right? It's not just about shot making. It's not about scoring. Scoring in the playoffs is, is, is important, but it's not as important as the, as defense, rebounding, and execution. And so Kamingo wasn't rebounding. He was watching. He was watching the ball. He was ball watching. He wasn't rebounding. Uh, Jordan Poole was turning the ball over. He wasn't necessarily efficient with his possessions. He was he was a little bit reckless. Um, and then Dante was unplayable. I mean, he he was getting burnt on switches. He couldn't stand in front of his man. He was missing wide open shots. But I will say this: all of them had their moments. Kaminga had a good had a couple good moments in Game Three. Dante had some good moments in Game Three. Jordan had some good moments in Game Four. Uh, and Game Six, he was okay. And and so all of these guys had you know sp- sprinkled in some good contributions throughout, but ultimately to be to remain consistent, you have to lean into sustainable um, contributions. Like in terms of look at GP two, right? There's a reason he gets consistent run. Is even though he he may not be the greatest offensive player, right? They, teams leave him open. It doesn't matter because he's a great slasher. He puts pressure on the rim, and he's an incredible defender. And he's very active. So that activity is going to is gonna buy in. And see, this is what Kaminga should be doing, right, in terms of locking in and keying in on how can I be an impact player instead of a score or a, you know what I'm saying? And defensively, I thought in game four, that was his last, like that was the nail in, in, nail in the coffin where he just was dying on these screens. He was not fighting over getting a hand up. And Fox was walking into these shots. Yeah, you're supposed to go under the screen. That's the scheme that they like to run. But Wiggins, at every moment, every time he went under, still got a hand up. And Fox made those shots at times, but he missed it other times. But Kaminga was just allowing Fox to walk into open shots. Dante just couldn't stand in front of his man, caused breakdowns over and over again. Uh, and, and he tried in other ways to rebound and whatnot. He was just undersized, and it wasn't a good matchup for him. Then you got Poole, like I said, a little out of sorts. Shot selection, not great. Um, defensively was not good and, and just inefficient as a scorer. So these guys struggled, but I, when Steph has to come at, come into a, a, a meeting and have to, has to really set the tone in terms of understanding what the priorities are and what the intentions are, 
behind these this series and what the playoffs mean and, and this game, like you would you'd hope that the young guys would understand. Now Moses Moody seemed to understand. He he it seemed he understood the assignment. Rebounding the ball, attentive, locked in on that end, trying to rebound and, and, and be physical, be a presence, find a body, box out, hitting open shots, timely shots, knocking him down when he's open, cutting to the rim, putting putting good pressure, defending De'Aaron Fox, who, by the way, he shouldn't be able to defend. I mean, De'Aaron Fox is a tough cover. Moses Moody all season has been benched for his defense, comes right in and is able to lock up Fox POA for a number of possessions, multiple possessions. And so when you see how Moses Moody is able to slot in and be an impact player, um, it's just an incredible uh, dichotomy you know, of the young core. And I, you'd hope that as these playoffs go go on, that guys will be able to find their stride, because, you know, Clay, he'll he'll be hit or miss. He'll have games where he shoots twelve for twenty, and he'll have games where he shoots seven for twenty four. Wiggins is always going to give you defense and rebounding. Sometimes he'll give you twenty four points. Sometimes he'll give you fourteen points, th- twelve points. Sometimes he, you know, misses free throws, makes free throws, hits threes, doesn't. But I can't be frustrated with Wiggins understanding that his impact and value lies in his defensive um his defensive ability and his rebounding uh value as well. So when you combine that with the fact that you know you look at Looney and Draymond, they find ways to contribute uh doing the ancillary stuff. You'd hope that Dante right can find his stride and and, and be able to slide him where he's needed, that Jordan Poole and Kaminga will be able to as well. So when we talk about this this difference and this shift, what do you see in that Lakers series, based on what we've seen in this in the first seven games of the playoffs and and in this King series, that we can translate and you'd hope to see improve on um, against an Anthony Davis and LeBron James led team. Uh, so there's a few things when it comes to uh, what they need to do heading into the Lakers series, but. It's things that we've talked about throughout the course of this entire season. And that is the way Steve Kerr uses the rotations um, and kind of hopefully he figured out that you need to finish each quarter with Steph Curry. Like, let's start from there. Let's let's start from the top, which is that like game one, he he took Steph out and he, Steph wasn't even finishing quarters, which is ridiculous because we know that that's the recipe for the Warriors success. And if you don't do that, you're closing out a quarter with a guy like Jordan Poole, who, you know, he loses his composure under pressure um, and just he's just not anywhere near close to being on the same tier as a guy like Steph. Right. So and in the playoffs, you, you want to rely on your best and you want to use pockets of the game, like the start of the second quarter and the fourth quarter uh, for a guy like Jordan Poole to hold ground while your best player gets a breather. Like, this is the way it should be. So hopefully, and I, I still, you know, I don't know why Kerr took away the 12-6 from Steph uh, in, like, late this season. Because that took Steph's rhythm away. And it just, it's the thing that's been working for, like, the last, what, decade. So I don't understand why Kerr has this insistence on taking that away from him. Even in uh, in Game 7. He took Steph Curry out after the first five minutes of the game. What, is Steph Curry tired after playing five minutes of the first quarter? Why are you taking him out 
for a three-minute stretch of a do-or-die game. It doesn't make any fucking sense to me, Dre. It doesn't make any sense to you. Why would he come out with five minutes in the yeah. first quarter? I mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, I thought we built some a good lead. I, we were up by six, but I know what you're saying. You, you know what I think Steve is doing is he's trying to start and end quarters with Steph. The 12-6, 12-6 are in the playoffs, 12-10, 12-10. Um, well, more so 12-8, but we'll say 12-8, 12-10, whatever it is. Those eight minutes, while they're while they are concurrent and they're they are um, consecutive, you don't start the quarters with Steph. Like if you're seeing, if you notice with these rotation patterns, you're starting the game with Steph. You're taking him out in the middle for a few minutes. Then you're closing the quarter with Steph. Then the second quarter, you're starting again, take him out for a couple minutes, then closing again for the last three four minutes. Then in the third and fourth, same pattern. So the question now is. Is it better to play Steph for like long consecutive stretches of like 12 minutes and eight minutes, or is it better to start and close quarters with him for good chunks of the quarter, but have these intermediate breaks where he's sitting for like two, three minutes? That's the question, right? Like, cause if you are starting and closing every quarter with Steph quarters, one through four, I do feel like there is a, there is some positives in that. But yeah, like r- from a rhythm standpoint, it, it is a little bit difficult because with 12 minutes now, you can lean into playmaking, then just get your own, or you can kind of come out hot, then kind of simmer down and, and settle in. Like there's a kind of some flexibility to that 12-6 um, that, that this new pattern doesn't have, but there's some positives to starting and closing every single quarter with Steph as well. So that's, that's mean, That should be yeah. automatic regardless of the 12-6, but... Um, I, I don't like it. I, I The notion that Steph Curry can't play a full quarter is comical because he's done it his ho- whole career. That is his rotation. So to me, there's just not really a good reason to take that away from him. Um, you know, if you get if you, if you can get all 12 minutes of Steph Curry from uh, in the first quarter and the third quarter uh, that they've always done, uh, that's going to that's going to yield positive results. And you don't want listen, one thing about the difference between playing the Kings and everybody else that's remaining in the playoffs is that the Kings were also a small team. Okay. Now this is one of the disadvantages the Warriors walked into the playoffs with because of the front office's transgressions of not replacing, not ever having replaced uh, Otto Porter Jr. In the off season, they could have done it middle of the season. They could have done it in the buyout market. They didn't do it. And now they're not even using Jermichael Green. Anthony Lamb, or even Kuminga. So now they got four guards coming off their bench. You know, what championship-level team has four fucking guards coming off their bench and playing three-guard lineups and four-guard lineups? And that's another thing that I wanted to address. This is something that we've been talking about this entire season. Fundamentally, that's stupid. You don't play four guards in, in the NBA. Size absolutely matters. And there are guys that cannot play the power forward position. Perimeter size. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. That perimeter size, we, we don't have as much. And I want to quickly point out, so that four-guard stuff is insane. I think the four-guard lineup is it, it is just not conducive to success, right? You're way too undersized. You can't rebound. Defending is is hell. Uh, the three-guard lineup, I think we can get away with, depending on who, who is out there. If it's Steph, GP2, and Clay or something— or Steph, GP2, Dante, maybe like 
there's some stuff you can get away with. Yeah, Dre, we know that. But what I'm talking yeah. about, uh, and you will know this, is like starting Jordan Poole. Like, what the fuck was he doing? I don't understand. We, how much evidence have we gathered throughout right. the course of the season that Steph right. Curry, Jordan Poole, and Klay Thompson, that particular three-guard trio, yep. doesn't work defensively? It oh, doesn't. Yeah. Klay has fallen off a fucking map when it comes to his defense. Okay, I, I'll say guy. this: the first, the first like few games, the first two games, Clay was not good at all on either end. Defensive, well, offensively he was okay. Defensively he was really bad. But I do feel like, like after game four, I thought he was pretty good though. Like even like game seven, he was pretty good defensively. Like he was fighting over screens, really sticking to his assignment, defending Keegan Murray and 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 Malik Monk. Malik Monk didn't. I don't even think he had a shot on him the entire series, um, and he did. A, he did okay. He did on, on the Fox, pick and rolls. He got erased. Um, at the first few, the first few games, he was just horrible screen navigation wise. He was dying on screens. And I agree. team scheme wise, like he just falls asleep a lot, man. He falls asleep a lot. He's he's become very undis- undisciplined on that end of the floor. I don't appreciate it. I Steph, uh, Clay Thompson has always been known as a, a two way guy, a, a dominant one at that somebody who's completely and utterly reliable defensively. And he has really fallen off the map in that regard in terms of label being able to label him as a two-way player. He's no longer that. His so, defense isn't as consistent as it once was, but I've seen him have stretches where he plays great defense. He's I just capable. Think, he's capable, but he's not yeah. consistent. Right, right, right. That consistency is what makes you uh, a, either a good player or not a good player in terms of being uh, on the defensive end. Right, he, he's somebody that the Warriors can get away with. He plays good enough, right? Uh, but he's not like, oh, this is our guy. Like he's one of the reliables, like a Wiggins or something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I say this not to criticize Clay Thompson as much as to say that when you add Jordan Poole into the equation right. on top of that, and then you're small on top of that, uh, and then you got like Jordan Poole on switches getting attacked by the other team by various players. And, you know, stuff like this, the rebounding, Clay Thompson, not a good rebounder, Jordan Poole, not a good rebounder. So you're playing at a huge deficit when you play these three guard lineups with those three in particular. And then Steve Kerr decides to start him. Like, I understand that the Warriors yeah. lucked out uh, without Draymond in the starting lineup when he got suspended or whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. But going this route is just so crazy. Like even in game six, right? It just, it compromises the structure of their defense. And we've seen it too, also, that they're not even as good offensively when they run that three-guard lineup. It, it causes confusion because Steph Curry's off the ball too much and Jordan Poole is handling the ball. And like that does that makes no sense, especially come playoffs. Okay. So we yeah. went over this so many times. You shouldn't be doing that. But he went to that as a starting unit. Like, like I don't want Steve Kerr to kind of fall I into this also, trap. I thought of also fool's gold. It's the, um, fool's gold. It, it can, it go can ahead, sometimes work, but yeah. uh, from a big picture standpoint, against bigger teams, like I said, the Kings are an exception because they're also a small team. Most other teams remaining in the playoffs are not that small, so you don't want to run that. You don't want to run that. Yeah, go I ahead. thought when they started, um, so the last few games, right? So from game four, so so game three, Draymond gets suspended. Game four and five and six, they started pool. I thought, and and you know, Draymond comes out and he's like, um, 
you know, we, uh, I went to coach Kerr and I told him like, look, if you need me to come off the bench, you know, we, we can have that conversation. You know, I'm more than willing, all that stuff. I just thought you can't, I know it worked for a couple games, game four and five, we, we won, but I, I just thought it was a mistake. I felt like it was like, it was almost leaning into something that we kind of all knew wasn't necessarily ideal. Like you, we need to start with defensive effort and continuity. And we got away with it in game four. We got away with it in game five. Um, and Draymond played his ass off in both games. But in game six, he was phased out. And and starting pool was just not it was just, and I get it, like you want to lean into something that's working. If it ain't if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I get it. But I just thought they got a little too cute with that. They got a little too cute with, you know, let's bring him off the bench and we're winning, you know, games and I you can't do that. You gotta you gotta start your guys, um, and you gotta lean defense, like you've been saying. I want to get just really quickly because um, before we close this out, we haven't really talked much about the Lakers series. Let's talk about that matchup coming up. Um, again, any like the positives and negatives we just talked about: three guard lineups, four guard lineups, rotations. Uh, just kind of how players have performed overall these playoffs. Maybe like how playable certain guys may be, more so, less so, like Dante Kaminga, Pool, etc. This upcoming series from a matchup standpoint, like any positives and negatives that you see can translate and what do you expect overall? Okay. So first of all, the Lakers are a, they're a bigger team. They're a bigger team. They have more length. Um, they're a much better defensive group. Obviously the Kings are one of the worst defensive teams in the league. Right. So it's a problem that they were able to take the Warriors to seven games. I think if the Warriors optimized their offense the way they should have, if they optimized their rotations from the get-go, it would have it should have been a sweep. A five at worst, if, if they mess around for like a game, right? Just like they did against the Nuggets uh last year. Uh, but the Lakers are a completely different team. So you can't mess around. You can't mess around. Uh Kurt can't mess around. He can't get like you said, he gets quote unquote cute sometimes. The playoffs is not the fucking time to get cute. Uh, in any kind of way whatsoever Uh, you have to have a sense of urgency and intensity uh, in the playoffs at uh, all junctures of the game don't fuck around okay so having said that i think number one the warriors are very fortunate that they ran into a team that has the worst a worse record than they do Uh, the warriors have home court in the series right i'll make sure no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Lakers are seven, the seven seed. The Warriors were the six seed. Yep. So that's amazing and super necessary because the Warriors and Stephen Curry have a history of not playing well at, uh, you know, in uh, Los Angeles uh, at Staples Center. Whatever is a crypto, whatever they call it now. Um, he has a history of having had some horrendous games uh, in that arena. So. Not having home court yeah. uh, against that team would have been it would have been a huge factor, uh, but the Warriors have home court, so that's a huge thing. Uh, number one, number two, uh, I see holes in that Lakers defense that Steph Curry can absolutely exploit, and the Warriors can ex- exploit. Mm-hmm. And like LeBron is what thirty nine, thirty nine, 
38, yeah. 38. He's old. Um, and right. he stopped playing, you know, possession by possession defense many, many years ago. Uh, I think if you have the opportunity to get switches on him and attack him, uh, do that because he's not a perimeter defender. He can't move like that. Uh, it's easy to get by him, right? Yeah. So I think you can attack him copiously. I think D'Angelo Russell is fundamentally not a great defensive player. That's another guy that you can target. And Anthony Davis, get him out, get him out on the high pick and roll. Right. Like, and when the Warriors play high pick and roll, like they start from like half court, bro. You know what I'm saying? So that kind of thing can completely erase a guy like AD and kind of open up the lanes and stuff like this. Right. Who do they have uh, in terms of their backline defense once you get AD out of the equation on the high pick and roll? Nobody. It opens up. Yeah, I mean, Vander, v- Vanderbilt maybe can help weak side a bit, but but I think typically he'll be point of attack. Like, he'll be on – I don't – so, you know what the funny part is from a matchup standpoint? Some Laker fans don't even want him on Steph. Like, they just want, like, a chaser. Like, they don't they don't necessarily want Vando to be, like, pressing up. Uh, they think it takes away from – but some Lakers fans I've seen say, yeah, no, it's an absolute must have Vando out there on Steph because uh, his to, to optimize his value – He's going to have to be a defensive positive. So from a matchup standpoint, like you said, you think we can explo- exploit LeBron. You think taking 80 out the paint in the pick and roll stuff would, would help. It's kind of like Brooke Lopez, right? Like if you force right. Brooke to, to come up on the screen, like, or Giannis, like remember, I remember last year they were doing that with Giannis. Boston was. Boston, there was no Brooke Lopez out there. So Giannis was essentially their, their anchor mm-hmm. and they took him out. And and he was and now at that point their their rim protection was non-existent, so, and we run a lot of more a lot more motion stuff a lot more layered, uh, motion principles than than um than Boston does so, kind of that that concept that you just said absolutely like taking AD out the paint is a must you can't if if you don't make him work and make him have to make choices and decisions and give up certain things like you are letting him off the hook you know exactly so. Uh, you don't want to run a bunch of motion against this team. They will blow it the fuck up. You know what I'm saying? Um, and yeah, I mean, there's just so many different ways to attack. People act like the pick and roll is very one dimensional or something. But the fact of the matter is the pick and roll creates an immediate advantage because you erase a defender doing it. Right. So it's a distinct advantage and, you saw how they were working in various ways against the Kings and the, the way they spread the floor. Um, and if the pick and roll uh, guy himself is not necessarily uh, generating points directly because it's like loony rolling or something and he's forced to either finish or create, uh, you can also pass out to the side like the way Draymond was uh, from kind of uh, near the corner or uh, – he he ends up being the passer that uh, feeds the roller, right? Or yeah. or somebody's cutting and somebody's going to be wide open and somebody's going to get a really easy look and it's going to be purposeful. You know that it's not going to be a turnover because pick and roll, it, you, you have an advantage, right? That's part of the reason why you get less turnovers when you run that. That's true. Let so, me ask this. Um, yeah. Who do you think should start and who do you think should close? You mean for the Warriors? Yeah, of course, of course. 
I mean, starting wise, you're gonna start out with the regular starting lineup. So you don't. So you do think we should play the two bigs like Loon, Loon and Dre, um, and then close. And then, what do you think we should do with in terms of closing? That's their. That's statistically their best five. The starting it is. Lineup, it is. Right. It is. So it's all a matter of how they're used. But matchups wise, there might be some issues offensively, right? Yeah. So because of spacing. Right. So again, the spacing is less of an issue when you play the pick and roll, but that's true. That's true. Um, so I'm saying like, I hope that at the very least, because you know what they do, they have a tendency to run the motion and then go to other things as the game goes right. uh, and they can do that. But if, should that not work? Oh, they just got to start out with a pick uh, with a pick and roll schemes, DHOs, uh, ISOs, like this kind of thing uh, mm -hmm. earlier on. It's okay to do that. You saw that against the Kings. You know, they, they ran that shit to the ground. And eventually, you know, Steph Curry, you know, single-handedly just overwhelmed them. You know, just that amount of pressure. We got to understand, like, people yeah. are like, oh, Steph Curry had a mesmerizing per performance. Not necessarily. He just had a lot of fucking possessions to work with. He missed 18 shots. That's a lot of fucking shots that he missed. Uh, he missed a lot of easy shots. He missed a lot of bunnies. Um, and generally speaking, I thought he missed a bunch of shots that were super makeable for him. So it's not like he was on fire. It's more that he was being consistently used as a threat, right? Uh, and he felt comfortable taking the shots that he did. And so uh, you can do the same thing against any other team. And I feel that in order for the Warriors to get over the hump of their roster construction issues being smaller and all these things, you have to optimize everything else. You can't have all these other fuck-ups and lapses uh, you know, in a bunch of other areas where Steve Kerr is not making the correct decisions uh, that, are, uh, the that are most conducive to winning. So I think... Uh, I think from a so from a starting standpoint, because I know what you're saying. I it might be tough to start Loon and Dre because AD and Vanderbilt are just gonna. I mean, they're just gonna sag off of them and just completely load up on Clay and Steph and Wiggins. I feel like this might be a series where you start GP two maybe or I don't. I wouldn't say Dante, but GP two maybe. I don't even want to say pool. But you might have to just because you want to spread them out. Like now, never I, stay pool, Dre. Please, I never know, stay I know. It's, you it's, never it's, compromise the defense the to start is, a game. We were just criticizing starting pool last series, and you're right. Like it is, it would be a big. He would have to play really well, and it would take away from Steph a little bit from a from an efficiency standpoint. Like just having Jordan pull out there makes Steph Curry not. It doesn't optimize him. It it. it it oh his skill set they overlap. The conversation and, ends there. If that yeah. if it does that, then don't do it. So then maybe we start like a guy like GP two. Yeah, we go small ball five with Dre, and at least GP two can hit the occasional three, and he can guard perimeter on the perimeter, and he can give you some rim pressure that Looney can't. You bring Loon off the bench. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of different options because I do think that lack of spacing can present problems for us. But I will say this, the closing lineup is up for grabs. It could be Dante. If Poole has like 26, it could be Poole if you want to ride that wave. But generally, it should be Dante or GP2. Probably GP2, yeah, right? You, you yeah. probably want to close with GP2. And in certain situations, Looney, right? If yeah, you need yeah. rebounds or whatever. I, we have options. Um, I think it's all situational. Now, what do you... 
maybe don't make a prediction, but do you expect us to win the first two games at home? I Personally, I, I do expect the Lakers to win one just because I think our legs are tired. Um, but I do think if we win both at home, I think this series might be shorter than expected. Um, but, I mean, it's going to be tough because the layoff is, is short and we didn't really have a ton of time to rest. Um, but, yeah, what do you what are your thoughts on that before I close it out? So I'm going to uh, – I mean, I, I have two predictions. One, if things are optimized as they should be and there are minimal – uh, fundamental errors from a coaching perspective. I think the Warriors can beat this Lakers team in five with home court advantage. Um, I do think that uh, like they don't have anybody that can remotely come close to uh, stopping Steph Curry or containing him. Uh, I mean, if, if it's like Austin Reeves or something, you know what I'm saying? Like just, just get, get, get Steph Curry on switches. And uh yeah, I, I think if they play correctly, they can win in five. But if they do too much motion and make the same mistakes that they made uh, in the first series, it, it could go to six or seven. So uh, I don't know how it's going to turn out. They Again, they have a roster disadvantage here. You got Hachimura coming off the bench. He's a pretty big dude, and he's an effective scorer. Who's going to stop him? Kuminga? Kuminga is known... Yeah. For not being good against guys that are bigger than him. Right. This right. is something that we've been talking harping about, right? That's true. Not a good well, why did he not play? Because of rebounding, right? So and why does he not why does he have a problem with rebounding? Because guys that are bigger than him, uh, they just kind of you know bump him out of the way. He's, he just doesn't know how to hold ground, stand ground. Like these are not things that he kind of uh it's not a part of his game. He he has to learn those things. And so the Warriors, who do they have? You know, they got Jermichael Green and Lamb. Like, are they going to have to go to one yeah. of these guys? Right? It's yeah. tough. Wiggins may have to play a whole bunch of, of more minutes than, you know, he's yeah. accustomed to. Yeah. To try to contain a guy like Hachimura. It's going to be a – this is going to be a factor, right? So, mm -hmm. we'll see how it goes with that. But, again, I think GP2 is going to be a big factor. I think, like you said, he has to be – probably he's going to have to close games, right? Because he's the most elite – uh, defender they have alongside Wiggins uh, and uh, you know Dante and you know Dante is capable of closing as well I, I think he's gonna play uh, better hopefully uh, I don't I don't think he he he's as good in the playoffs because teams attack more with the pick and roll and he tends to get erased that that's one of his biggest problems that he gets erased and cannot recover in time I'll say this though, um, from a matchup standpoint, you're exactly right. Dante struggles um, from from the pick and roll stuff. He historically, when you when you watch Dante on the Bucks, he was essentially uh, trailing. He was like a lock and and trail type of guy, where he they would funnel to Brook, and then he would kind of just really aggressively trail his um, like the guy he's defending, and so he gets kind of like. And when you face De'Aaron Fox and you face guys like Malik Monk, like that type of D, like when you get wiped out, it's just, it's tough, man. They get to their spots. They're going to knock it down. I will say this. D'Lo, Reeves, Schroeder to a lesser extent. These guards are way more perimeter oriented. Like D'Lo, like I trust Dante to just stay in front of D'Lo, get to that shot pocket and do a good job flying by a contest. Or like a guy like Reeves 
who, you know, just stay in front of him. I was breaking down film last night of um, the March game. I remember that March game where we went down by 20 early. This was Steph's first game back. And LeBron didn't play in this game. Dante had a decent game, and he was defending Reeves really well, hounding 94 feet, uh, just really aggressive and really just a presence. And that game, you know, you it, even though you can't take too much stock from it because Wiggins didn't play and LeBron didn't play and, they, you know, whatever. I just watched that game, seeing some some things that we could do. And even Kaminga played that game. He didn't really have a great game. But I think I would expect Kaminga and Dante to have a better series. Now, a much better series. Now, with Jordan, Jordan's going to have to hit perimeter shots. Like, like Anthony Davis is going to be in the paint. He's just going to be camping out, helping the helper, just being a presence as that anchor. Jordan, Jordan's either going to have to do the in-between game stuff where he's just at that nail, pulling up in the, for the mid-range, getting to his floater, or just hitting threes. And if he's not doing that, he will have a brutal series. Like, he's going to have to play and be efficient on the perimeter because they're not, they're going to do the buck stuff. They're going to do the buck stuff with Brooke Lopez where they're just shutting the paint down and you're just going to have to hit perimeter shots. So I would hope that Jordan is able to do that and is ready for that. And he may draw some fouls behind the three-point line. Watch out for Jordan Poole drawing some fouls at the three-point line because he understands how to, you know, angles and how to shift his, contort his body for contact. So these are things that he's going to have to find ways to be effective. And that's one way. Um, yeah, Darvin Ham, yeah. uh, he was an assistant for the Bucks, right? Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah, so literally, he they will probably run the same shit, right? Yeah, and, and I would uh, expect they do similar stuff with Steph too. They might run some semi drop, and Steph is gonna have to like shoot some threes, man. He's gonna have to. It might be similar to Boston, where he's just gonna have to shoot some tough threes, and he'll knock them down, as I if, expect. If Steph Curry's on the ball and they're playing perfect, uh, purposefully, uh. Curry will hit his shots, no doubt about it, because he will be in rhythm. And when Steph Curry, when Steph Curry's in rhythm, he's gonna hit his fucking shots. I'll Believe say not. this, right? We can. I know the the magic number is is three, but let's give one key to the series, uh, and then I'll close it out. So, for me, um, one the biggest key I think to win the series is rebounding, and and doesn't mean that we necessarily have to win every time the rebounding battle. But we have to keep it within, like, within a couple. Like, maybe we win by two rebounds. Maybe we lose by two or three. Maybe we win by four. But we just cannot lose the rebounding battle handily. We cannot lose by, like, seven like by like seven or eight or, like, by 12. We got to keep it within a margin that's that gives us a chance. Because if we – we're going to turn the ball over against a good defense. This is a good defensive team. But if we rebound the ball well – it at least offsets the negative, the, the the issues that the turnovers cause in terms of giving up possessions. Reboundings create extra possessions. So you, we, I think rebounding is the biggest key. Um, other than rebounding, because maybe that was your, maybe that was yours as well. But what what do you think is like one big key for this defense. defense? Defense and how you guard their best players, right? So mm-hmm. number one, AD, Draymond. Draymond has a history of playing AD really fucking well, right? They've seen, and he's seen, they've seen each other in the playoffs, you know, a couple of times. And uh, when shit hits the fan, who's going to win out on that matchup? I like Draymond's fucking odds. So uh, we'll look forward to that. 
Uh, Wiggins against LeBron will be very interesting to watch. Uh, I think I think also Wiggins can attack LeBron. Like, like I said, LeBron, you know, in an ISO situation, he's kind of a cone. So I like Wiggins. You remember against the Mavericks how Wiggins like kind of relentlessly attacked a guy yeah. like Luka. Yeah, he can yep. do the same thing against LeBron. So uh, the big again, uh, the key factor is how Wiggins will fair defensively and, because and you make a good point you make a good point because lebron was cheating off of guys like dylan brooks last series david roddy he was he kind of could play free safety yeah because he didn't have to guard brooks yeah and he didn't have to folk you know and so when you have a guy like wiggins who can make you pay yeah. and and attack like it's a different it's a different dimension yeah so wiggins uh has to be aggressive uh but he does give up a a good amount of size against LeBron. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. Uh, but, you know, LeBron's a very methodical offensive player. Uh, and if Wiggins can contain him uh, single-handedly, oh, the creation ability of LeBron, you know, out of the post and whatever the case may be. So that will be a big factor. And uh, the other guy for the Lakers that you got to obviously pay attention to is that free throw merchant. Uh, what's his name? Reeves? Yeah. Uh, I think... You put a guy like uh, Gary Payton, I, you know, as much as I love Gary Payton, I just feel like he's not at the same level as he was last year, probably because of that. 60, he's like that, 60, 70 percent. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms yeah. of his all around overall ability, the way he finishes in the rim and, you know, around the he's paint not area. He's not as explosive. Yeah. Yeah. So he'll get back. He'll get that back next year, but he's not the same. Uh, and he does give up some size to a guy like Reeves. But yeah. I, I do think that uh, Gary Payton uh, can take care of a guy like that, you know, enough uh, to, you know, pressure him into bad shots and, you know, turnovers, whatever the case may be. So I think those are some really uh, key factors. Like, do the Warriors have the necessary components to be able to stop their best players? And I think they do. Absolutely, man. Hey, I appreciate this conversation. I appreciate this preview, um, this recap of the King series, preview of the Lakers series. Um, this was really good. We, I know uh, we we touched on a lot of topics, and I want to thank everybody again for listening uh, to the Chasing Wins podcast. Uh, you can find us wherever you get your pods, including the free Odyssey app, um, and turn on that auto download feature to get our pods as soon as they drop. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Peace.